Welcome to the Bullshit Blog, your number one podcast for disseminating truth from bullshit, covering public health, politics, the economy, the occult, spirituality, and everything in between. If you're fed up with the mainstream media, then keep listening. What happens to your feelings when I mention the coronavirus? Feelings of anxiety and dare do I say, fear suddenly come bobbling to the forefront. Apparently, it's supposed to be the zombie plague that wipes out humanity just like in World War Z, which, by the way, also started in China. But what is it about the coronavirus that's scaring everyone senseless? What does it do? And why the pandemonium? Here on the Bullshit Blog, we investigated why the world has been agitated by this virus. The political intrigue, corruption that followed. Is it an overreaction or is there genuine concern? So turn on your bullshit meters and let's separate the truth from bullshit on this episode of the Bullshit Blog. Considering I'm no doctor or microbiologist, I went looking for the people who knew about this kind of stuff. And where do you find people that know about this kind of stuff? Facebook, of course. This wonderful place was filled with interesting memes, articles, and even opinions on what the coronavirus was and where it came from. However, one very nice educated fellow by the name of CPBear69 suggested perhaps I should be asking these questions of actual medical experts. I should get in touch with the WHO. Apparently, the WHO stands for World Health Organization. Imagine my embarrassment when I thought it was a rock band. After contacting WHO, they put me in touch with this incredibly nice spokesperson. Dr. Margaret Harris. After the good doctor and I went down this intellectual journey together, I was introduced to some other people who have actually done research and wrote papers and have jobs in this field. Timothy Newsom from the University of Sydney's Microbiology Department joined me for a chat. Hi doctor, just to inform our listeners, could you please tell us a bit about yourself, who you are, and your academic background. Sure. So um, I'm an academic at the University of Sydney and I teach uh, virology and I also run a research lab in virology. So I teach uh, students fresh in to their science degree um, in the first and second year, but most of my teaching is actually third year virology students, which are students who have an interest in the area of virology. Um, Yeah, so my lab is probably more fundamental. I mean, my research lab is we look at um, the smallpox vaccine. So smallpox was probably one of the most famous um, uh, pandemics there's ever been, um, responsible for a huge loss of human life, but also one of the greatest accomplishments of uh, modern medicine in that uh, vaccination led to its eradication. So I'm not allowed to handle smallpox. That's just kept in a couple of labs around the world, um, in, a, in okay. the USA and in Russia. But what I do handle is the vaccine strain. So we look at why this strain was successful. Dr. Margaret Harris. Okay, so I'm born and bred. I was born and bred in Sydney. I grew up in Sydney, worked, uh, first of all, be, studied medicine and worked at Royal Prince Alfred Hospital and down in Wollongong Hospital. But I always wanted to be a writer. So I uh, called up the Sydney Morning Herald one day and said, I'm a doctor, but I'd actually like to be a medical journalist. And amazingly, at that time, the editor said, come in for an interview. So then I became the uh, 
Sydney Morning Herald's medical correspondent. So I've been both a doctor and a, a journalist. And uh, for quite a while, I was the Hong Kong correspondent for the Sydney Morning Herald and and worked in Europe and so on. But then I became a, in during SARS in Hong Kong, I became a communicator about the issues around SARS. I did something called SARS, Your Questions Answered, and decided I wanted to go back into medicine and back into public health. So I went back to University of Sydney and studied public health. And after that, I was offered a job with um, UNICEF, and then I started working with um, the World Health Organization. So I've really specialized in doing exactly what you're doing, trying to separate the fact from fiction and get out the health information that people need decisions to protect their health. Doctor, can you please inform our listeners, what exactly is the coronavirus and what does it do? So it's actually what the virus we're talking about, it causes a disease called COVID-19. It comes from a family called the coronavirus. So that's a bit confusing already. Um, Coronaviruses are called that because they've got this, this little crown around them so they look really like the sun with a, a round circle and a flare around the outside called the corona and that's why they're called coronaviruses uh-huh. in the past <laughs> in the past they were mostly known in humans for causing colds and they didn't they, they didn't cause too much trouble just a bit of the sniffles but then okay. back in 2003 we uh, an illness emerged a disease emerged in Hong Kong it actually emerged in Guangdong in China but the first knowledge that we had a serious um, new virus came from Hong Kong when people crossed the borders and and brought the infection to Hong Kong and people got very sick with the SARS outbreak. Now, the SARS coronavirus is a member of this family, and this particular coronavirus is genetically very close to the SARS coronavirus. We've got another uh, member of the family that causes MERS, that's Middle Eastern Respiratory Syndrome, which has been sort of sputtering along in um, the the Gulf states in Saudi Arabia and and the countries around, but was also imported to Korea back in 2016 and caused quite a big outbreak there. Of the three, MERS is really lethal. It's got the highest death rate. SARS killed 10% of the people that it infected. This one is... Um, doesn't seem to be killing as many people. It's the, the death rate in this outbreak is a, a sort of two to three percent, but it's much, much more, more contagious. So SARS wasn't very good at spreading from person to person. MERS is even less good right. at doing that. But this one is really good at getting into our population and going from person to person. This is a family of viruses that exists both in animals, uh, different types of animals, as well as in humans. Human coronaviruses, which cause mild infections and would cause um, infections which would probably just group together as a, as the cold, as a common cold. So different um, viruses and bacteria can actually cause what we refer to as the common cold. So these are human uh, coronaviruses, which you know, normally very mild infections. Um, but there's also animal coronaviruses, which um, occasionally can infect and spread amongst humans. And we've seen this before with um, MERS, Middle Eastern uh, Respiratory Syndrome, as well as uh, the original SARS, um, Severe Acute Respiratory Syndrome, and what we're seeing now with this um, novel coronavirus. So these are animal viruses which have uh, what we call a spillover event begun to infect and spread amongst humans. 
when this happens and how it happens is unpredictable. The impact is, is yeah, the impact is very hard to predict because sometimes these can be very deadly. Sometimes these can be deadly but not spread that well. Um, and what we're seeing here is an unfortunate combination of it being quite contagious, albeit not as deadly as the previous MERS and SARS events. So it's more than just a nasty cough, right? Yeah, that's what we're still trying to figure out. Um, uh, so it does seem that the majority of people who get infected are only experiencing pretty mild symptoms, and that's estimated to be around 80% of people. There may even be people who are completely asymptomatic. Uh, there, there is some evidence for that. Well, we can what make does that definitive mean? statements. It means that you can carry the virus, and it seems to be like 80% of the people who are having a mild infection, that they... They seem to be able to carry the virus for a period of time, which may be weeks, um, where they're able to in infect other individuals, but they, right. they're not symptomatic, so they can be hard to identify without a diagnostic test. Now, that's, you know, that's uh, a couple of weeks is, is perhaps unusual, yeah. but that's also true with, you know, the normal influenza we have is that there's a period of time which when you're probably infected but you're not really showing symptoms. So you're right it is more than just a nasty cough. Um, the cough tells you where it is. It's gone down into your lungs. So this one doesn't hang around in your nose and your mouth very much. It goes straight down into your lungs. So right. it, in most people it starts with you know that awful feeling when you think oh did I overdo it last night too much? You know, have I not, have I been working too hard on coronavirus? Or, <laughs> right. or is it something else? You know, when you get hit feeling like, oh, I've just been hit by a train. Um, yeah. And th that's followed by a fever. In, in about 90% of people, we're seeing a fever of some kind. Um, so that's something that tells you it's a bit different from a cold. A cold, you may feel a bit feverish, but you won't have the high fever. Uh, right. And the other thing is a dry cough. So, you know, again, with a cold, you get the sniffles and so on for a few days, and then you might get a bit of a cough, and then you get a bit of a, a cough that produces some sputum. With this one, it's a dry cough. So you're not coughing anything up. You've just got this irritating cough. Right. Um, now, for most people, if if it all goes well, that's what they've got for two weeks. And having said it's just a dry cough, I don't think people feel all that well during those two weeks. <laughs> so okay. so you, it, you, you can't <laughs> just have the cough and not have the, the fever symptoms. You, 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 you do have to have both? No, no, no. Uh, everybody's bodies react a bit differently. So that's why uh, you, we, we say 80% this, 90% that, because it's common. It's, it's very, very common for people to have the fever, but some people may not have, um, they may only have the cough or, you know, it, 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 they, they may simply feel exhausted and have a fever for a while. Uh, that the cough tells you it's gone down into the lungs. Uh, the fever tells you it's in somebody's body and their immune system is trying to fight it off. But some right. people, like very young children and very and, and older people, often don't mount a fever when they have a, a virus or something entering their immune system. The immune system doesn't react that way. So that's why you'll never get 100% on any symptom in, in the human body. Where did the virus come from? Did it come from the Wuhan market or was there another point of origin? Yeah, so this is one of the big mysteries. Um, they, certainly the team we sent to China did a lot of work around that to try to find what we call the animal source. It right. looks pretty clear from studying the genetics of this virus that it 
probably originated in uh, a family of bats um, because the bats carry this particular virus or, or virus is very, very, very similar because, you know, a virus, when it's in an animal, has one sort of set of genetics and then it changes. It has to change a little bit in order to be able to get into humans and stay in humans because other it, it just doesn't survive in humans if it doesn't have the right genetic background. Right. Um so they've found the, this virus in bats, but they they were pretty sure that there's an intermediate link. What may be happening is different animals are being infected by the bats, and then the animals uh, uh, infect the humans. I mean, sorry, the animals right. are mammals, bats are animals too. <laughs> because normally yeah. with um, a virus like this, you expect it to come from a mammal to a human. Uh, and it was around December they were saying they believed it was um, a meat-based virus that was coming from, I, I think they were even saying pork products, but then that quickly changed. But now they're saying that the person that they believe was the origin, or this is one of the, I guess, myths of uh, of the outbreak at the Wuhan markets, was actually they had it before they actually went to this restaurant. Uh, I don't know how true that is. Can can you give us any information? Uh, we don't have that information. Uh, normally, actually, what happens is you don't find the one person, you know, the the. Right. the individual because what happens is the thing sort of experiments it jumps back and forth jumps into one human maybe into another human doesn't doesn't succeed goes back into the animal so it it has a few goes at getting a foothold in the human population so you find quite a few different incidents where it was trying so you can't say aha that was the moment you'll say okay there were quite a few moments going on uh, we think it was actually the live animal, the use of live animals, um, that uh, different mammals have been identified as likely but not proven, like the pangolin has been. Yeah, because uh, yeah, there's just a lot of misinformation going around saying that the person that they supposedly tracked down already had the disease before they uh, went to the this actual eatery at the market and they were just saying, oh, the restaurant's saying that's not the case. So that is a myth, right? Like like you said, is, it's not just one any person. That's, yeah, that, that is unproven. Yeah, it's exactly yeah. right. Yeah, I, I, certainly it, it seems to have, uh, yeah, one, I would say, you know, in Wuhan is likely to be the origin. Um, the markets wouldn't be surprising. It's almost certainly an animal origin for this disease and, scientists are now trying to figure out exactly what that animal origin is. So they're looking for close relatives of this novel coronavirus in different animal species. And they have um, found that and uh, they have found a a few candidates, I think, um, in the pangolin, this uh, small scaly um, anteater. They've found uh, uh, pangolin... um, virus coronaviruses which closely resemble this novel coronavirus and also in bats and that's uh, the origin for many um, dangerous viral pathogens so things like Ebola virus um, Hendra virus in northern parts of Australia these are all viruses on the original SARS virus as well all have bat origins Um, so bats do seem to be able to carry viruses which don't really affect bats that much. Much, um, they're yeah, right. happy being infected with them. They don't, they yeah, so they're like completely asymptomatic, but they yeah. are able to be a, a reservoir for some potentially dangerous human pathogens. 
but very often there's what we call an intermediate host that leads to infection of humans. So humans don't necessarily have to have contact with the bats. They might have contact with an animal which has contact with the bats, and that's just a kind of intermediate link. So pangolins right. could have be the, the, the suspect which might have transferred this virus to humans. So is this becoming like a chicken and the egg kind of argument now as to like where it came from? Um, I think it's useful to determine where it came from because it comes from because that's the first step in trying to um, reduce the likelihood of this happening in the future. Right. Um, so I think it's an important question to ask. Um, I don't think you know it's quite possible we won't have a definitive answer on the exact route by which this virus emerged, but certainly right. learning that it's ultimately the origin was somehow uh, potentially, in this case, it might be bats. Um, is there useful information? Well, this was getting interesting. As I compared both the doctor's and the professor's answers, I realized something, well, both incredibly similar, almost identical. Could this be a coincidence or is this a deliberate deception? Let's continue and find out here on the Bullshit Blog. Apparently, according to some news agencies, a part of the problems is coronavirus is very hard to detect. Is that true? So it depends what you mean by hard to detect. We have diagnostic tests, which um, I think are, are, are pretty good. Um, they're very sensitive. And uh, with appropriate sampling, you can detect definitively whether somebody is currently infected. And crucially, right. when they've overcome the infection and they now no longer need to be isolated or quarantined. So from a diagnostic perspective, no, I think we have the tools that are pretty good and pretty reliable, pretty robust to determine whether someone has a current infection. Uh, it's easy to detect in terms of uh, laboratory testing. The throat, It's a simple throat swab and the test is, is pretty good. The problem is until you've got... And in the incubation period, you're not going to get a positive test. So people think, oh, you just should be swabbing everybody. Until you've actually got symptoms, until you're getting to that fever and, and dry cough, you're, you may well test negative, um, even though right. you do have the virus. So, uh, again, really, it, it, the main thing that, that helps is having what we call a high index of suspicion. If you do think that you're at risk, um identify yourself. Are you able to give our listeners some information on infection rates, especially in terms of population ratios? As I said, you know, our understanding is compromised by the fact that we don't really know how many people are really infected. Any number of the, the number of cases is going to be an underestimate. Um, so that's why the, the, the figures are, you know, can range. So I've heard seen estimates from the lowest around about 0.5% to up to right. 3%. Um, because two percent seem... seems to be the magical figure that's been thrown around. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. And you know, we've got perhaps some events which allow us to make better estimates of that, such as the Diamond Princess cruise ship, because you probably you know, everybody on that was tested, but the population in a cruise ship is maybe not indicative of the population as a whole. They're generally older um, individuals, so that sort right. of might be. Um, display higher, uh, more severe symptoms in that group than in the general population. So it, it's varying in different populations. What we talk about when we talk about transmission rate uh, and we give, say, a factor of two, that means if, I'm, if I've got it, I will infect two other people. Um, right. 
it's it's varies between two and four. That's one one thing you know the modelers and the epidemiologists are, are debating and learning, and it varies from from country to country. So, for instance, the spread in uh, Korea happened because there was uh, uh, seems to be a mass gathering a, around a funeral in. Um, right. Uh, in a in a religious sect, and, uh, okay. and so the activities around that led to a lot of very close contact, and and uh, we've seen a large outbreak. So when you get something like that, you have a much higher transmission rate because of the behaviours. So uh, it's hard, it's difficult to separate sometimes whether the thing has a has its specific transmissibility rate because it's depending on our behavior. Another innuendo that's been making the rounds is that only the elderly have been affected by this virus. And those who are youthful or middle age really have nothing to worry about. Is that true? Yes, so this is this is a, a nonsense. It, the elderly are the people most likely to die from it. So it's no, it's an equal opportunities virus. It goes for everybody. Uh, it doesn't right. matter race, ethnicity, gender. It, 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 it's happy to be with anyone. It's, yeah. uh, the reason it is a big deal is, as, as I said, as we've discussed, it's because it's so transmissible. Yes, the yeah. people who are most likely to die are older. But when we're talking older, we're talking people over 50 now that's half the population in australia so yeah. you know. some data released by the cdc in china you know, recorded 400 cases of children under 10 and i think there were no fatalities in that group whereas it okay. was up to 15 percent for individuals 80 years or over um so that's quite uh, an impact on of age on, yeah. the, on the likely outcome. That's not to say that there aren't cases, severe cases in you know healthy um, middle-aged individuals, but yeah, it sure. seems like the likelihood of it being more severe is a, has a big age component. If you are infected, what is the likelihood of death? It infects a huge number of people, as it did in China. You then, 2%, that's, we've seen 2,500 more than that of people die and remember of those people another uh 5% 10% so you're you're seeing 20,000 up people needing severe um long term uh intensive medical and nursing care so that takes huge numbers of staff working around the clock so it's really what it does to your health system now you say well again it's not so severe why are we so worried if if you don't have that level of care, many more people would die because, as we mentioned earlier, it goes down into your lungs, it causes pneumonia. So the, right. the reason it, it, we're seeing a reasonably low fatality rate in China may well be down to extremely good medical and nursing care. Uh, in another place where that's not available, we may well see a much higher death rate. We don't know yet, but we are concerned that that's what we may 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 occur. People have underestimated, massively underestimated, the ability of the Chinese medical system. You've lived there, so you know how extraordinary and 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 the leaps and bounds China has has um, come ahead in in the last 10, 20 years. Uh, in other countries, they don't have that level of technology. They don't have that level of uh, human resources, you know, large, large, large teams. They don't have the ability to call in the teams. I mean, for the Wuhan outbreak, teams, medical teams came from all over the country and China mm. was able to mobilise those people because they've got that huge population and that huge highly educated population. Well, it depends on your age. So, you yeah. know, so that's 15% you know, if you're elderly, much less 
much more reduced, you know, down to 1% for someone middle-aged and perhaps even lower for um, children. But, you know, this is based on small samples, but uh, yeah. that seems to be the emerging picture. Right. Uh, I think it's probably interesting to point out that that's not that far off what the Spanish flu was. So the Spanish flu was, you know, perhaps the worst pandemic we've ever faced, um, you know, a little over okay. 100 years ago. And that, pro you know, that 50 million people were killed and that had a, a fatality rate of something like 3 to 5%. Now, uh, so that's why it's not just how deadly a disease is, but it's also how many people are actually going to get infected. And right. if this goes around the world, then you're going to see, you know, unfortunately, a, a large number of cases. So it's more the exposure as opposed to the vitality. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, Ebola virus, you know, has a case fatality rate of, you know, up to 80%, depending on the particular strain of Ebola virus. But it's much right. less contagious. You know, um, MERS was more like 30%. SARS was something like 10%, um, right. which sounds awful. And it is awful, of course, if you yeah. do but these viruses were not that contagious. They were contained. Um, and we're seeing that it's very hard to contain this particular virus. Well, now for the multi-million dollar question that's on everyone's lips. Could the virus be bioengineered as opposed to developed through a natural mutation? <laughs> yeah, this is going to come along for every new pandemic, this question, isn't it? Yeah, um, absolutely. I, 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 I think there's there's no evidence for that. So the fact that we have found coronaviruses in bats that are something like 97% identical to this novel coronavirus absolutely suggests an, uh, a, a natural animal origin to this particular virus. Um, not to say it's not going to be possible in the future, but I don't think we're at the point of generating... Um, deadly viruses uh that it's not world war z just yet no i i, I don't think so um unfortunately nature seems to be you know quite um uh expert enough to throw out uh, these uh, zoonotic events which cause us enough concern without people engineering um bioweapons no. no so we did actually look at that and no yeah. we're, we're absolutely confident no so 100 percent, it's definitely not been it, it, it's not no. bioengineered it's, it's through natural mutation it's through natural mutation we can see the genetics back in the animal kingdom we can see the genetic genetics um in in the virus that's in the human population so no during the swine flu bird flu and sars epidemics we didn't have social media disseminating information 24 hours a day seven days a week like we do now we had to rely on mainstream media outlets to give us updates do you believe social media is partly to blame for this panic or is it traditional media to blame for sensationalizing these reports so um, we're finding social media is has got two sides to it essentially yeah. it's all it's a fantastic way to reach people and yeah. a lot of the social media large social media companies have uh come to us or we've gone to them and have they've agreed to direct people to the sites that actually have the information that's going to help them that's right. the real information as opposed to the misinformation but we yeah. are certainly seeing what we call an infodemic that uh, we have large teams now working on dealing with the misinformation uh, and it the team isn't quite as large as our epidemiological team but it needs to be because we're yeah. really fighting on two fronts yeah i think um i think there's been the traditional media outlets I, I suspect there's been some caution about uh whipping these people up into a frenzy because of the, the kind of the non-event that swine flu um ended up being 
I, I think social media has played a really positive role in some respects as it very much uh, provides some transparency to uh, particular governments which are not that transparent. So I do question whether we would know this much and be able to act so swiftly without um, the reports that were coming out of China through those non-traditional sources. So it does, you know, it does force a certain level of transparency. And I I'm completely agree with you. I'm sure there's probably lots of misinformation flying around on social media. So you have to be discerning uh, about what you know, information you take on board and, and that, that can be very hard. But uh, but on with the whole transparency thing as well, without social media, would we be getting some of the stats and statistics that we're actually getting? Because uh, I think in previous, in previous times, I think governments have been successful in limiting in terms of the information coming Absolutely. out. So I think that transparency, is, I think that transparency is really important. And also, I mean, as I said, there's lots of bad sources out there, but there's lots of really good sources out there. I mean, there's lots of scientists in, you know, at the front line of the coronavirus outbreak who are on Twitter and you can follow them um, and get some fantastic information. And I think the community also uses social media to work together really well to you know, uh, try to push forward and uh, uh you know, try to coordinate a plan to get some uh, measures to contain this. What can listeners do to protect themselves from the coronavirus? Yeah, and you know, I, I would refer you to the health.gov.au uh, website because, as I said, I'm yep. not a medical doctor. Um, but uh, the the act of um, breathing or talking or laughing or coughing or sneezing releases spread over some distances. Uh, so that's certainly touching surfaces where other people may have touched or breathed on or sneezed on and then touching your face. I mean, you unconsciously touch your face, eyes and nose, you know, hundreds of times a, a day. Um, so that's a really important um, route of transmission. So good hygiene would mean, um, you know, you can do that now. Start practicing not touching your face, being aware of where your hands are, uh, washing your hands uh, are key measures for um, reducing the spread of a disease like this. Okay, so three things, basically. Um, there's the washing hands and be obsessional. Understand that you must not touch your mouth, nose or eyes with an unwashed hand. Now, that's easy for me to say, very difficult to do. So people say, oh, you always say washing hands. I've rarely seen a person who's very good at it. And, and okay, you know, I've spent most of my life as either a doctor or a communicator on health. So I, I should know, I should be like obsessional. I find it difficult. So I think it's difficult for everybody. Second is what we call social distancing. If indeed uh, there does seem, is transmission in your society, in your um, community, Think about social distancing is basically keeping three metres away from the next person. It's kind of a silly term because it's not very social at all. But, yeah, no, no, it's quite the opposite, yeah. <laughs> yes. So let's call it anti-social distancing. <laughs> but uh, but it, it, it does work. So, again, if you know any transmission that's going on is going to lead to um, – is is only going to sort of occur if you're within two meters of the other person you've got a very good chance that's your barrier that's more effective than a face mask because um 
your face masks get wet very quickly and you tend to touch them. So anything that's landed, if you think the face mask is a barrier from anything that's coming from someone else, if it's on the front of your face mask and you touch the front of your face mask, you're in trouble again. The other yeah. thing is remember that your surfaces are where the droplets are landing, so be obsessional about cleaning your surfaces. Uh, that again, or if either you're not obsessional about cleaning your surfaces, then every time you touch a surface, surface clean your hands. If you do both, you're way ahead. Right. Uh, so, so that would mean like touching your mobile phone, touching your tablet, your laptop, right. always. Right. Exactly. So give your yep. mobile phone a good scrub. <laughs> Again, I'm looking at mine. It's disgusting. I, you know what? I just thought of that. I haven't been doing it. So, yeah. Yeah. Keyboards. Uh, yeah, no, no, we're the same. You know, we're all flat out and picking up each other's phones, looking at each other, looking at each other's screens. And I was I was watching us all the other day and I was thinking we need to get a bit tighter about this. <laughs> yeah. I think I need to do that on, on, on my own as well. Are there any updates on cures of vaccines for coronavirus? Quite excitingly, actually. Uh, there's a lot of research now looking at using viruses to, in a therapeutic sense um, to treat really? uh, cancer. Yeah, wow. so uh, we... The first uh, approved drug of this uh, category um, was approved a couple of years ago. It's actually a herpes virus, and it's uh, delivered to patients with a cancer, and the virus just infects and kills cancer cells. Um, well, we're wow. leaving normal, the normal body cells intact, and um, we're interested in uh, trying to figure out if uh, the virus I work with, which is called vaccinia virus, the vaccine for smallpox, um, can also be used like this. And I'm one of a number of labs around the world with an interest in this particular uh, area. Yeah, so as I said, I mean, we, we have never made a successful vaccine against um, uh, a coronavirus that you could use in humans. So um, there's a few labs uh, around the world um, that are very much trying to it. There's an Australian effort using what they refer to as a molecular clamp um, vaccine. But we're really starting from a pretty uh, basic um, start, you know? I mean, vaccines can be incredibly difficult to make and there can be lots of promising results in vitro and in animal studies which don't pan out in humans. So we don't have a template to adapt that, you know, has a, a very high chance of success. So we need a lot of different strategies working, you know, side by side and hope, hopefully one of those will come will bear fruit um yeah. so there are a number of labs around the world that are doing that um you know i mean i've heard uh, estimates of up to 18 months that's a really really optimistic um scenario wow. in, in, in so my even opinion. if you can come up with something it would take some time for it to be administered back into the population yeah because you need to show that it's helped that the, that the vaccine doesn't cause harm in healthy suspects uh, in healthy sorry, patients uh, before you can even begin to treat um, patients and then you have the manufacturing uh, of the vaccine, the rollout of that. I mean, these are you know, these are things which have taken decades for other vaccines. So obviously uh, we, well, we would try to you know, reduce those kind of time frames, but um, yeah. you know, it's possible we can't make a vaccine. And there's many important diseases we have failed to make vaccines for. Um, the vaccine is definite, would definitely be perhaps the most useful tool because it provides you know, long-term protection against uh, against diseases, and uh, and uh, that's why we use vaccines against a number of diseases: measles, mumps, rubella, human papillomavirus, um, uh, influenza, because they are so effective. It's it's one 
for one or a couple of doses, which give you lifelong protection, which is preferable to antiviral drugs, which can have side effects and are incredibly costly. Um, yeah. In principle, I guess you could make an antiviral drug um, in um, in a shorter time frame. Um, uh, how difficult that is, we'll, we will see. Um, the best case scenario is that we could perhaps repurpose antiviral drugs that are used for other viruses and hope that they have right. activity against um, coronaviruses. But, um, you know, what's going to pan out is you know, your guess is as good as mine. <laughs> there is a tremendous amount of um, work going on and there's a tremendous amount of uh, possibilities. So there are at least four candidate vaccines being worked on right now and the race really is on the, the good thing sort of it's a bad thing that SARS uh, appeared and and caused so much illness and and death in 2003 but the good thing yeah. about that is it gave us a head start we know a lot about sort of the virus dynamics uh, I mean the this virus behaves differently but we know a lot about its genetics and and have done a lot of the in vitro work the work that you have to do in test tubes and so on to understand right. how you would build a um, vaccine. So they had a lot of that preliminary work done already. Now the big, um, the sort of the slower part of that work is to test it in healthy human volunteers. Um, because we have an outbreak going on at the moment, that sort of work will be done at the same time as testing whether or not it protects people who are exposed because most of us, you know, of the healthy human volunteers, they might well be in communities where there's ongoing virus. So that will speed things up. But we couldn't really expect to say that we've got a vaccine that's safe and effective for another six months. So we're going to have to wait six months. Six months would be super fast. I mean, right. a year would be super fast. Normally, vaccine development takes three or four years. Um but there are also quite a lot of treatments. The Chinese, because they had such a huge outbreak or having such a huge outbreak, uh, have been testing uh, a bunch of different uh, treatments and they've been doing uh, randomised controlled trials. That is, they've been testing right. one against another to see which one is the most effective. And we're certainly expecting to hear um uh, some results from those trials very soon and have a better understanding of which drugs are, are being more effective. And again, if somebody said, I've got the vaccine now, uh, you'd still have to be wary because I'd want to see the human safety data. You want to know that it doesn't have side effects. Uh, uh, vaccines operate on your immune system and we only um, uh, – uh, they're only licensed and, and available for widespread use once we're absolutely sure they don't have serious side effects. Just in case people want to keep in touch with what you're doing and what your lab's researchers are putting out, can you give us a website or some kind of social media platform where people can look up your lab and what, what, what's going on and what you're up to? Yeah, um, thanks for that. Um, I, my lab doesn't have a, I don't, I'm not very good on social media, but I uh, can certainly be found at the University of Sydney uh, as one of the researchers in um, the School of Life and Environmental um, Sciences. Excellent. And again, thank you so much for your time, Professor. I really appreciate it. I know you're a very busy man. And once again, thank you for all the work that you're doing in your particular field. And thank you for speaking with us today. Thank you. Associate professor, not a professor yet. But, uh, well, you. it's close <laughs> enough. <laughs> Cheers. That's a pleasure. And, and um, it's lovely to speak to somebody from <laughs> my wonderful country. <laughs>
Oh, likewise. And next time <laughs> I'm in Hong Kong, I'll shoot you a message. Okay. All right. Dan, these are unprecedented times for everyone. However, I thought I'd share what I learned and make some comments. But have we learned anything as a society from recent events? First of all, I'd like to thank all the medical teams and frontline medical staff which have had a tremendous impact for putting their lives on the line and helping us. Well, for one thing, I learned it's definitely not bioengineered. However, I still have my doubts, and I guess everyone always will, regardless of what truths we discover. And I think we have learned one thing, that hygiene is important, always has been, and always will be. Second of all, and I know this has been overstated, and I would just like to address the hysteria that has gone on. Stop blaming all of China. I understand people are scared, people are angry, however, it's not everyone in China's fault. Here in Australia, we're able to separate the individual from the government, so why don't we afford the Chinese the same luxury? Despite what might have occurred, I don't think it's acceptable to target any one individual person, spit on them, or ethnically abuse them based on their appearance. I'm glad somewhat the panic buying has stopped, however. Please cut this shit out. I don't understand why people don't know there's enough for everybody. Only buy what you need. And in saying that, I must address the overreactions from a lot of our governments, whether it's here in Australia, wherever you are across the world. I understand we need to curb the infection rate. Have the reactions from our government been a deception or an overreaction? That will be a debate for the ages. I personally believe we do not need some of the extreme policies and rules some governments implemented. For example, New Zealand's Prime Minister banning fiction book deliveries because it was a non-essential service. People reprimanded or fined for reading a book in the park or eating a kebab on the street. The implementation of locating and tracking apps is beyond extreme and borderline draconian. As long as people are practicing social distancing, I don't see what's wrong with people being out and about. Society can't be on shutdown forever, and society can't be on shutdown until we develop a vaccine or cure. As we discovered today, that may take some years, so there needs to be a plan for normalization of activities. We need to face the grim reality that entails before our economies and societies become so impoverished, recovery is almost an impossible reality. A friend of mine recently reminded me of a humorous comparison with current events. Remember when everyone found out that pro wrestling on TV was fake? The same thing is happening now between the disconnect with the political, media and social elite classes and general society and has been for some time. However, the realities of the coronavirus have pushed this disconnect to the most extreme. Sure, some will continue to watch and understand its entertainment value, but a lot will refuse to acknowledge it at all and totally dismiss it and turn off. Do we really want that to happen? I understand in some societies like in Italy and now in the UK, it's probably deemed necessary. However, luckily here in Australia, we haven't been hit that bad. My other concern is the loss of civil liberties. Now people may say, oh, you're being a... I do understand that the governments are monitoring people's mobile phones to make sure that they are social distancing and those under quarantine are staying. What will happen after the virus is finished? Will things return to normal? Will they get rid of these implementations? I also question not just the Australian government, but governments on the around the world to rely on free trade, which is a good thing in my opinion, but also international trade. A lot of local manufacturing in Australia and other parts of the world have ceased in order to purchase and import 
from other nations. If this virus has taught us anything, I do believe that we rely too much on foreign imports. While I'm not saying eliminate foreign imports totally, I do believe we should be looking at having some local manufacturing, especially for dry food goods like rice, pasta, and tin manufacturing of vegetables and fruits. However, I hope everyone listening is healthy, happy, and isn't in too much distress. Remember, we're all in this together, and despite what you think, be nice, respect each other. Well, I hope you enjoyed episode one. This is Adam Spins for the Bullshit Blog, signing off on episode one. I'll see you same bullshit time, same bullshit channel. The Bullshit Blog, your number one podcast for disseminating truth from bullshit, covering public health, politics, the economy, the occult, spirituality, and everything in between. If you're fed up with the mainstream media, then keep listening.